Millions are getting vaccinated. I'm Jerry Barmash, and this is Here Now the News. The demand is there, and now the supply is as well. The Biden administration doubling its own goal, with 200 million Americans getting their shot within the first 100 days in office. As I record this, more than one in five of all Americans are fully vaccinated, with a large number of people between doses, as we work toward bringing COVID-19 under control and resuming a sense of normalcy. My guest today is vaccine expert Paul Gepford. We'll discuss why many people are still refusing to get the shot and how to best communicate with them. Plus, we'll talk about the differences between the three vaccines in the U.S. and how long people should expect protection to last. Joining me today here on Here Now the News, I'm pleased to have Dr. Paul Gepford. He is director of the Alabama Vaccine Research Unit at uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham. Doctor, thank you for being with me today. Yes, thank you for having me. We uh, coordinated this on a very short notice, so thanks to you and thanks to the uh, the press people, the PR people for uh, helping uh, put this together uh, again with uh, very short notice, so appreciate that. So clearly uh, with vaccine in your title, that's a lot of what we'd like to talk about today. And I picked Alabama for a reason because I noticed, and I'm sure you're aware, uh, that the state has the fewest people that are getting the vaccine, and I guess the fewest in terms of uh, distribution of the vaccine. Is, is, is that the situation? It is. You know, I think it is a race, and we always pit one state against the other. We're not that far behind most states. I mean, that's tracked every day on a website that we have um, in Alabama. And from the doses we've gotten, we've administered over 80% of the doses. So I'm really that's not really my area, but I'm not sure if it's a lack of us getting the doses or a lack of distributing. I'm, I'm sure a lot of it has to do with rural areas. I do know that, for instance, UAB has, has uh, done a fantastic job of getting out their doses, but you know we're in, a, in an urban area, so um, it's a little bit easier. And I, I can't really tell you the reasons for that, uh, for why we're a bit behind, but we're not hugely behind most places. Um, you know, I think the New York Times has rates posted every day. I think it's close to 20% have gotten one dose now and 30 something percent, two doses. And, you know, I think uh, Alabama is a little bit behind that, but not that far behind. But it's, is it more about getting the, the distribution to the state or it doesn't sound like it's a matter of people not wanting to take it? Not well, that may be part of it. But right now, up until very recently, the biggest problem was actually getting the vaccine. There were a lot of people who just couldn't have vaccine available. That certainly was true in Birmingham. I mean, a lot of people would call me asking me how they can get the vaccine. Um, and I mean, I have no process in that e either because I'm not in part of the vaccine distribution. I did the research, but that still happens to this day. People are trying to get vaccines. It's just starting to open up a little bit now. However, we do live in a state that has uh, you know, 25% African-American that have been historically recalcitrant to vaccines. And we do see that. Um, and then also, as you know, um, we also have our very conservative state as well. Uh, and a lot of white Republicans are probably the most recalcitrant to taking the vaccine. So I think going forward, we are going to have some issues with that. Without turning this into politics, but do you think that that is where we are left off from the previous uh, administration? You know, I, I don't know. Um, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, the African-Americans, that's not the reason. Um, mm -hmm. That's another reason. I, I can imagine that the prior administration would have something to do with it. it. 
I mean, there's a lot. I think when you want people to get a vaccine, you need to be direct and clear. And that was, in my opinion, the prior administration was not direct and clear about a lot of things, especially with regards to some of the COVID issues and certainly not with the vaccine either. The only message was that they had a hand in developing the vaccine, which is true. They weren't big proponents of telling people that it's safe and you should get it and all that stuff. And I think we're sort of suffering the consequences of that right now. Mm-hmm. Plus, when you when there's this whole thing about that COVID is not really that big a deal anyway, why would you get a vaccine if you don't think it's a big deal? So I, I think there are things like that as well. Well, I was doing, I do sometimes Uber Eats. I make, you know, deliveries for Uber. I've done the driving, but I've decided until everything calms down and fully vaccinated, I'm not going to get people in the car, but I'll, I'll go and, and, and pick up the food. And, and by and large, almost every single person has you drop it off in front of their house and, and it's contactless. One person wanted me to give it to him in front of his house. Didn't have a mask as I arrived, didn't have a mask as I showed up with the food to him. And then not only did he not have a mask on, I had the mask on, of course. As I approached and I had my arms as stretched out as I could, he said to me, no, no, it's fine. You can come closer. The virus is is fake. So he he added that commentary that was certainly unwarranted and, and un, unnecessary uh, at that point. I didn't engage and, and I handed it and walked away. How do we get those people... That, that just seemed completely uh, unwilling. How do we get them to get the vaccine? Yeah, I mean, that's really difficult, right? I mean, I'm not an expert in that area. And I keep saying I'm not an expert in this or that, but I think it, it requires a one-on-one discussion with somebody they trust. It's not going to be somebody like me because the more I tell them that they're wrong, the more they sort of dig in. And I'm not sure that just giving them data Uh, is important for them. And this goes beyond COVID, right? I mean, there are many things that are like that. You have climate deniers, uh, you have the COVID deniers, you have the flat earthers. I mean, it doesn't matter what kind of scientific rationale you give. I, I think what it requires is a long conversation with somebody they trust. And you know, and the problem is when you're in a pandemic, it's it's very difficult. Yeah. And then I, I would caution though, I think what you probably saw, I'm hoping, is one far end of the spectrum. And I'm hoping that there are a lot of people that are sort of more people than not are sort of on the edge. They're just kind of hesitant. It's kind of new. They want to see how it plays out. And we need to try and continue to be cheerleaders of these vaccines because they really, when they were found to be efficacious, it was just amazing. And then ever since they've been implemented and wherever they've been implemented, it, it just continues to be amazing. And so it hasn't really distracted at all, uh, including against, you know, variants and stuff. I mean, so I don't know how else to do it. I think we need, you know, the scientists, but also a lot of the political leaders, if they could all get on board to really make this a concerted effort. And it would help, I think, if, if all the politicians would just say, look, everybody get vaccinated. And I think there are certainly the Democrats have always said that. But I think there are certain Republicans now that are also echoing that message as well. You know, the other problem is that historically, we just, beyond COVID, we, we've we never been really great at vaccinating adults. Kids is a different matter uh, because we've been able to sort of use the school system and make things mandatory and people have seen the importance of that. But for adults, it's difficult. Not all adults go to a doctor regularly and there's no one point in time when you can do it. And every right. year, I think 
the best flu uptake is like 30, 40% of adults. So it's, it's a tough effort. I think we're going to have to do things differently. And you still, to this day, more than a year later, you'll still hear those people that will say, I don't need a vaccine because this is just the flu. You, you'll still hear that even after more than 550,000 people uh, that have died from this. Yeah, I, you know, that's an interesting dilemma. The, I think the problem is that for the average person, they may know somebody or may know of somebody. There's some people who don't know anybody who's actually died of it. And so it is 1% or maybe even less than 1%. But that when everybody gets infected, that's a huge number. And and to be sure, everyone should know that if you don't get vaccinated, you're going to get infected eventually. I mean, you just can't hold out that long. And so I think if this was like SARS-1 and it was infecting everybody, it'd be a totally different conversation where you're talking 20 to 30% mortality rate. And then I think we wouldn't have this debate. But the thing is, you, there are certain people that have to see things directly. They don't, they're very um, skeptical of news media. They may have heard possibly that somebody didn't do well, but you know, otherwise it's not like they see people dying on the streets, for instance. And I think in some ways, some people, that's what it takes. Um, right. So I don't, yeah, it's difficult. And I, I do think that we're going to, I think that 60 to 70% of the population vaccinated is about as good as we're going to get. But, but the good news is, though, <laughs> is that so far, these vaccines, the best thing that they do is actually protect the person who's vaccinated against se- severe disease. And so I, I realize that the variants may throw a wrench into that whole process. Um, and we likely will have to continue to vaccinate. And if we could vaccinate everybody, we wouldn't have to vaccinate so often. But the good news is, is that people who get vaccinated are highly protected against going to the hospital or dying. Um, and so in some ways, you know, the people who don't get vaccinated, they're going to s- almost select themselves out, essentially. Do we know how long people will be protected with these vaccines? We don't. You know, the the longest data now is Pfizer. And I just know that of the press release. I'm not sure it's published yet, but they have really good data that the efficacy is maintained fairly consistently for six months. And then there's data that's published on immune responses and there's four month data for that. And it, it declines, but you, you would expect the antibodies to decline, but it doesn't go to zero. And most people still have those antibodies. And so I suspect it'll last at least a year, but you know, it's like most vaccines work best when the when the level of community spread is relatively low. If you have the two vaccines that both work exactly the same, or let's say you have one vaccine that works and you take it into a place that has, you know, let's say 10% per month new infections or something like that, it's going to work okay. But then if it's only 1% of new infections per month or 1% increased infections per month, it'll work a lot better. And so that's another reason that would be great if we could get more and more people vaccinated, because, you know, that's what happens, for instance, with these measles outbreak. What happens is, is, you know, measles has been eliminated. There's elimination, right? And there's eradication. Eradication is the only thing we've eradicated is smallpox, but we've eliminated several viral diseases, including measles, uh, mumps, and polio. What happens with measles is, is that you know, it's eliminated from the U.S. Somebody travels that's not immune somewhere else. They get infected and they go into a population of generally individuals who are poorly vaccinated. And what ends up happening is certainly the people who don't get who have never been vaccinated get infected. 
But even the people who have been vaccinated are susceptible as well, because the vaccine in that case doesn't work as well when you have a huge ongoing sort of infection. So it's kind of a complicated way of saying that vaccines work better when you have lower amounts of infection in the community. And again, that goes back to what you were saying with the fact that you're going to have 60 to 70 percent that would be vaccinated and you would need herd immunity to probably approach 90, right? You know, when we first started this whole mess, it was 60 to 70 percent. And herd immunity means people who have an immune response and not just get vaccinated. Now, fortunately, these vaccines are highly immunogenic, better than getting infected. And so, yes, but with the B117 variant, the variant out of England, out of the UK, uh, it may be that the um, herd protection may be higher. And so I think people are calculating closer to 80% now. I see. There are three uh, vaccines. There are the two doses of Moderna and Pfizer. There's the one dose of Johnson and Johnson. Um, uh, other than having just the one shot and not having to go back three or four weeks later for the uh, for the other two, I've read that Moderna has more side effects overall to the general population uh, than the others, especially Pfizer. Uh, is is that accurate? I am not aware of that. I, I think that Pfizer and Moderna are very similar side effects. There's certainly the tolerability, if you look at the data, is, is almost superimposable. They are essentially the same vaccine, except that they're, um, the liposomal nanoparticle that they're encased in is a little different. Um, and that may be the cause of the side effects. But um, most of the side effects were known in terms of immediate side effects, tolerability issues. Both of them cause pain in the arm in about 80 to 90 percent of individuals. And then both of them, it's about 75 percent cause systemic side effects. But again, so things like fatigue, headache, uh, sore muscles, some people can get fever, but those all go away in one to two days. Now, when you're talking about rare side effects, um, you know, the only thing that I think has been borne out that may be more than what we would have expected is some of these anaphylaxis things. Uh, those, I think the last data I saw are pretty equivalent between Pfizer and Moderna, maybe in fact a little more for Pfizer, but it's still on the order of about one in a hundred thousand people. Mm. What's true though, if you look at the data is the, the J and J vaccine is a little bit better tolerated. Uh, now it's just one dose. Um, so you could ask, well, if you give another dose, is it not going to be as well tolerated? But the phase one, two data from the J and J vaccine for some reason, that vaccine, when you give the second dose, doesn't increase your side effects like the other two do. Yeah, I, I was telling you just before we started, I had my uh, first dose of Pfizer uh, two days ago, recording this on uh, Friday, April 9th. I'm doing okay now. From when I had it for more than a day, I had real bad soreness in the shoulder where it was hurting to move it and stuff. And then the just headachey, just more than a normal headache that was like a tightness uh, on the head where you just couldn't lift your head and taking Tylenol as needed. And that kind of has dissipated today. So here we are by the second day. So it's it's much better. I've heard also that the second dose can be worse than the first. Is there any rhyme or reason? Like if you have something on the first, it'll be worse on the second or is there is it just hit or miss? Well, consistently, you are correct. Um, if you look at the data, uh, it's under, let's say, 40% have some sort of, almost everybody, one or two doses, first or second dose has a sore arm. But in terms of like what you're talking about, headache or fatigue and myalgias, uh, I'm sorry, uh, sore, sore muscles, 
chills, fever. People have at least one of those after the first dose in 40% of the population. So it sounds like you were in that 40%. Mm. Uh, and then the, the second one at 75%. I don't know if, if you've had it the first time, if you're going to get it the second time. I, I don't know that data. I do know anecdotally, there are people who, who got kind of ill the first time and didn't have any symptoms the second time. But the vice versa is much more true. And then there are people who've been sort of gotten some some side effects after both doses. Because you would just think, just as a layman here, that if you have that first dose and you're getting the same Pfizer or Moderna, that you would be somewhat getting immunity with that first dose. So you would think by the second one, you wouldn't have the same or, or worse issues, but it, but it doesn't necessarily work that way. Well, the problem is that a lot of the side effects... Um, have to do with your immune system. And so what happens is, is after the first dose, you have naive cells that for the first time, right, this is the whole point, they see this new spike protein that they've never seen before. And they, what your immune system does, amazingly, is it, it finds cells in your body that can recognize the spike protein. There aren't very many of them. There are very few of them. But then what happens with them is they find it and they start dividing, they start growing. And then they, within the next couple of weeks, they become what are called memory cells. So now you have a, a larger population of cells that are around by the time you get the second dose. And those cells are actually now experienced and they know how to divide much more quickly and respond much more quickly to this, to the second dose. Um, and so, so then what happens is, is you get, after the second dose, you get these cells that all of a sudden like take off. And so I think that may be why some people are having uh, more side effects. Now, the other thing is that it may be that some of the uh, nanoparticle things are causing side effects as well, which would be more part of the innate immune system. And the innate immune system is sort of unchanging all the time. And so if that's the case, you're going to have sort of the same amount of side effects the first and second dose. But, you know, that whole same process uh, occurs with the J&J &J vaccine, too, and it's not quite so significant. So I, it's probably a combination of both the nanoparticle, which causes innate responses, which works with the what we call adaptive responses. And that's probably why the mRNA vaccines cause more side effects after the second dose. Having said all that, that there's probably a good relationship as to why they work so well, uh, because a lot of times uh, the tolerability the more transient side effects, but not horrendous side effects, but the more side effects like that they cause, the better the vaccines work. On the other hand, I should caution, there are some people who don't have any side effects with these vaccines, and they, I get calls or emails that they're worried that they don't have an immune response. That's not true. Um, and, and the older you are, the less likely you are to have side effects with these vaccines, but it still works in older people. So uh, we still don't understand all that. But by and large, the way I like to let patients know is that you're getting a side effect. That's a good, that's a good thing because that means your immune system is working. I have a friend who had no side effects on either one and his wife had bad chills and things like that on both days. But you see a lot of people saying, oh, if you're getting any side effects, that means it's working. But it's, but it is true. Even if you have no side effect, you are getting the dose. It is still working, even if you're not getting a side effect. Point that yeah, out. And if you do the numbers, it's kind of obvious because let's say 75% of people get some sort of side effect, but the vaccines are 95% protective against COVID, symptomatic COVID, and 100% effective against hospitalization and death. 
So you know that it, it's close to working in everybody, even though not everybody has side effects. Right. And it also now seems to be able to work for children. That is something new that they are expanding from 16 now down to 12. Uh, can you speak about that a little? Well, yeah. So that that was a Pfizer press release. And I don't think it, and that was last week. Uh, and it was kind of amazing. 100 percent effective in 12 to 15. This is what I'm talking about, where the more you you delve into this or the more they're testing it, the better it works. But I think nobody should be surprised that it works better in that age group because immunologically speaking, 12 to 15 year olds have the best immune system in the population. Um, in fact, if you look at the human papillomavirus vaccine, the HPV vaccine, one of the reasons to vaccinate before the age of 16 years of age is because the immune responses are significantly not as good if, if you are older than 16 years of age. But if you can vaccinate the 14 to 16 year age group for HPV, they're the ones who have the best immune responses. So it doesn't surprise me at all that that it works really well in that age group. What will be interesting is when they keep declining in, in age, whether or not the you know they're planning to go all the way down to six months, it'll be interesting to see if the six month old infants um, have the same amount of protection and um, the same amount of immune responses. I want to ask you specifically to your hospital. We were talking about people not getting the vaccine. Do you know of hospital workers, whether it's doctors, nurses, or anyone else uh, that are refusing to get the vaccine? I do know that at UAB, not everybody, it's like 80% have gotten the vaccine. So at our hospital system, and I'm, you know, why is it not 100%? I don't know, but there, there are significant proportions, 20% who will not take the vaccine. And maybe they're waiting to see what happens. I mean, that is kind of human nature in some ways as to some people are very much into doing the new things right away. And other people want to wait a little bit to see to see how it plays out. It's tough, I guess, when, you know, especially doctors, nurses, the frontline healthcare workers, not to be taking it to help others because they're dealing so directly with the people they're treating them. And so you would think that they would want to uh, show at the very least that uh, it's safe. Yeah, I, I, what I will tell you is that I'm almost sure that when everything is sort of played out, that healthcare workers will be among the highest to take the vaccine than any other group. And, you know, this is flu vaccines at UAB and many academic centers. It's mandatory. And you can make flu vaccines mandatory every year, um, but you can't lose your job about it. What ends up happening is if you don't take the flu vaccine, you have to wear a mask. And every year there's many people who don't take the flu vaccine. So um, it's just it's just difficult. And we're just going to have to that's just part of our culture. And we're going to have to try and do the, the best we can to vaccinate as many people as we can. I don't think the answer would be to make it mandatory because that's going to be too controversial for our system and this kind of level of disease. I do think that certain places, I'm fine with them making them mandatory. Uh, schools uh, have made lots of vaccines mandatory, including a boost of measles before you get into college. Um, so I, right now, I think that colleges should make it mandatory. I mean, I guess it would help. It would help the whole quality of life of a college experience if you can have everybody vaccinated. 
once people are fully vaccinated, and I know the CDC has rules, you know, for those two weeks after either the second dose or if you have the J&J, that you can then get together with people who either are not at high risk or who also have been fully vaccinated after two weeks. Should people still take precautions otherwise? Should they still wear masks? Well, right now, yes. I mean, I, I just go with what the CDC says. It makes sense. And the reason is because not everybody's been vaccinated yet. And we don't know if you can't spread the virus, even though you yourself won't get sick. So you really are wearing a mask at that point, I think, mainly to protect other people and to keep the spread down to help to help control the level of infection before everybody gets vaccinated. But there is going to be a time when um, everybody who is going to get a vaccine has gotten a vaccine. And I'm not sure we're going to continue doing masks then. I think there's going to be a certain segment of the population that just is going to want to wear a mask. So for me personally, I used to get colds like two or three times a year, some sort of upper respiratory infection. I haven't gotten anything since the pandemic began because I wear a mask everywhere still. And unless I'm at home uh, or I'm exercising uh, and I socially distance. And I think some people kind of like that. You know, I think when when more and more people get vaccinated, and I think we'll have to talk about this again in the summer, in the fall, uh, we'll have to see where the whole mask thing is. I, I think a lot of people are just tired of it, and I'm not sure it's going to continue. Mm. And, uh, so, yeah. you know, our state, we don't have a mandate anymore. Although, you know, it wasn't enforced very well. And the culture here is if you go outside of Birmingham, nobody wears a mask. So. Mm. Because that's I mean, more of a metropolis, a college town as well. So it's easier to yeah, follow. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's more, you know, and there, there's certain, and again, it gets the political thing. Uh, uh-huh. It's gotten so politicized that it's almost that if you, if you wear a mask, it labels you as being a Democrat. And right. there's certain parts of this state in the rural communities that you don't want to do that. So I don't know. It's a sad state. I mean, you're, you know, you're yeah. trying to save lives. You're, you're on the front lines and, yeah. and you're, you know, you're dealing with this. It, it's a bad situation in that regard, but everything else is certainly very promising. Yeah. Yeah. It is bad. I, I don't know. I, I don't understand it. I don't know why it just bothers me that people can't see that they're really helping. You're trying to help your fellow man. Uh, it's just kind of upsetting to me. Obviously, many people get it and don't know they've get it or, or get it and have very, very mild symptoms as well. Of course, you can get asymptomatic cases and then transfer it to somebody and they can get very sick. Right. Bottom line, any any version uh, of the vaccine people can get whatever whatever is available to them, they should get right. They shouldn't be picky. No, not at, not at this point. Um, you know, the one some people worry that the J&J vaccine. So there's three vaccines, right? Um uh, that are available in the United States, um, Moderna, Pfizer, which are, I, I look at them as superimposable in terms of how they work and their efficacy, and which is very good, uh, and J&J. And dose per dose, they're all the same. Now, in terms of a vaccine regimen, it's probably that J&J may not protect as well against just symptomatic COVID, but it has better data against these variants. And it in terms of severe disease, it, protect, it protects incredibly well, including against the variants. Um, and and the thing is, it may be that the J&J vaccine, they're going to recommend later that you get another dose because they are doing that study right now. 
Um, they've almost fully enrolled. In fact, maybe now they have fully enrolled. And uh, if, if it turns out that two doses are needed, then whoever had that one dose may get another dose. Um, oh, but for now, it's highly protective after one dose. And that protection for the J&J vaccine actually gets better over time so far. It hasn't decreased. It actually gets better over time. So it's a fantastic vaccine as well. So the short story is whatever you can get, just take it. I do want to ask you quickly while we're talking about all the different vaccines. AstraZeneca, is that ever going to get to market? In the United States. In the United States. I, you know, I don't know. I I think they will apply apply for an FDA approval. And it's a very good vaccine as well. You know, it's the same type of vaccine as J&J, except that there's some subtle differences that may make J&J a little bit better. Uh, it has to do with a couple of things. One is it seems to grow better in culture to, to grow that vaccine. But then also the, the form of the protein that's used in the vaccine is the same as the Moderna and in Pfizer. The AstraZeneca one is a different form of protein that in, at least in, in the lab doesn't appear to induce as good immune responses. But um, nonetheless, it was 76% protective in the United States. And again, it was very good against severe disease. It induces what are called killer T cells as well, like the J&J vaccine, which may be very good at protecting against death and hospitalization. I think the company has just struggled from a PR point, and uh, it may be difficult to to just make it marketable in the United States. Um, but it certainly is a vaccine that is, is worthwhile to for people to get as well. And they will have this vaccine in many other parts of the world. And remember, we shouldn't just think of our, if we don't control this disease in other parts of the world, it's just going to continue to be a problem because, I mean, we're all connected now. I have to thank you so much for uh, for giving me this time. Sure. I appreciate it. Your interest. No, Hope thank you. Hope the podcast you. goes well. Thank you very much. Again, Dr. Paul Gepford, he is the director of the Alabama Vaccine Research Unit at UAB, uh, of course, in Alabama. Thank you. Thank you. Listening on Apple, a five-star review is always appreciated. Have an interview suggestion or comment, tweet me at Jerry Barnash. Drop me a note at hearnowthenewsjb at gmail.com. There's also my Hear Now the News Facebook page. Thanks for listening and supporting Hear Now the News. I'm Jerry Barnash.